Greetings, listeners in Listenerland. I've always wanted to say, what's happening, St. Louis? This is St. Louis in tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas (laughs) such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, government, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports we originate from and connect the Gateway City to what is going on regionally, nationally, and internationally. What's happening, Mark? (laughs) Don't scare off the listeners. <laughs> you're going to scare the listeners. I know you're going to scare the listeners. I know. Not much. Uh, listener land. You know, I wanted to address that. Listener land. Wasn't it, was it Hollywood land? Is that what it used to be? Do you remember? I don't know. The I know sign Chicago used to land. say Hollywood land. Did it really? I think, it, I think you're right. I think, yeah, wow. it did. So I guess we're kind of following that suit. Huh? Yeah. St. Louis Land. St. Louis Land. Okay, good. Good. We've got a big sign. Put that on top of your building. St. Louis Land. Okay. Yeah, it's great to be here, though. It's great. Uh, We're in the springtime, uh, and I just enjoy warmer weather. I don't know why I live in St. Louis. Been here all my life. I should, Unless you don't know any better to get out. I guess not. <laughs> I got allergies. I freeze in the wintertime. I live in a house over 100 years old, so it's drafty. I don't know what I'm thinking, but uh, I love it here anyway. It's a great place and a great time right now in I St. Know. Louis. Uh, the spring, like all the flowering trees. It is. It, that, I do love the, the different seasons. Isn't it too. wonderful? Yes. You know something's new, something fresh is happening. I, I do enjoy this. And when I see somebody with a coat on at this time of the year, they must be from crazy. They're crazy. Yeah, crazy yeah. town. <laughs> or when it's when it's thirty degrees and somebody's wearing shorts, you must be from Minnesota. Oh, oh my, Minnesota. We're very young. Or Minnesota. Minnesota. Right. Okay. All right. Sorry. Well. All right. I had to. I was watching. I'm uh, not watching. I was reading the news the other day mm. and came upon a story, and I was like, "What? What?" Because I. Born and raised in St. Louis, just like uh-huh. you, Mark, right. and just like our guest. Right. And I had never heard of this before. And what? I was like, what in the world? And so I emailed her. Oh. And I said, would you be willing to talk about this? And she was like, yes. And she wrote a book. Mm-hmm. It's called Chasing Picasso, the true story of a daytime heist on Art Hill. And if you know, if you're from St. Louis, you know Art Hill. That's the St. Louis Art Museum. But our guest is C. Joan Baker. And Carol, welcome Thank to you. St. Louis in Tune. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you, now you're a St. Louisan, so give us I a am. little background. What high school did you go to? Uh, Ro- <laughs> I went to Rosary High School in North County. Rosary, <laughs> But right. I grew up in Baden in North City. Okay. Okay. And that, so, Rosary. yes. Is that a Catholic school, Rosary? Yes. It yes. Is. And then I think it name, was named Trinity for a while, and then recently right. it closed, unfortunately. Yeah. It's off on uh, 270 there at and Elizabeth. Redmond. Yeah. Redmond Road. Right, Redmond. Oh, okay. yeah. well, I'll be darned. Yeah. yeah. I'm Catholic. I just know there's like a bunch of us around. Right there, you <laughs> it's go. Like, it's a lot of Catholics in St. Louis. Now you're yes. not an author by, I guess, training or anything like that. No. Well, <clears throat> yeah. My uh, initial degree was in English. I folk, uh, where I majored in journalism, but I went into marketing, and that that was where my entire career at. So the research aspect of my experience is in marketing research. So studying uh, behavior and buying behaviors influences in the market. Okay. Um, so when I left my career, so I, I worked for corporate America for over 25 years. And I got to the point between a lot of buyouts that I no longer loved my job. And I thought, you know, I've reached an age, you never know what happens. My father died at a young age, so I thought I should just 
do something I want to do and I want to write a book. So right. I, right. I left my job, but it took me a couple of years to figure out what to write about because I suddenly learned after doing the same thing for 25 years, when you do something different or you leave that aspect, it's like you're have to mourn your career or something mm-hmm. because right. you really you're like wow who am i without being that person right so i could not every time i sat down to write i kept wanting to write about marketing and mm-hmm. i was like oh god i really do not want to write about this this is boring so then i kind of just shelved the idea and i thought i'm just gonna let it go and maybe something will come to me so um it was a- actually probably around the pandemic period, probably maybe even a little bit before then. No, no, I think it was in the middle of the pandemic, I think about it. Um, I was doing a research project, just looking at some historical stuff and some keyword searches that came up about a, a theft. And it was about a later story, but then I was like, well, I've never heard of that. So I start digging back. And then in this old news article, I found that and the last line was like, well, the last theft at the art museum was 1973 when someone stole a Picasso. And I'm like, what? what? So this yeah. kind of started me down this rabbit hole, really, of what was going on during that time period right. where art was being stolen. And then I, I soon learned that art theft was uh, something that really started to bloom in the early 60s hmm. uh, over in Europe and kind of made its way to the U.S., and uh, today it is the third largest criminal trade. Art is the third largest criminal ter- trade around the world behind uh, narcotics and weapons. Wow. Or I think it's weapons, narcotics, and art now. Never knew. Yeah, so you would never know because the first two things when you think about right, right weapons and narcotics, those are not things you associate with good people or happy times. Right. Uh, but art's a little bit different. But art is also known as an international currency, and so that's mm. part of that tie that eventually right. came about. Um, so when I was trying to figure out what was going on with this story, I could only find news stories about what happened that time, what happened during that time, and um, the story just quickly died. It just didn't make it to a lot of newspapers. Picasso had died three days before this painting was taken, oh my. which added another layer of Mystery. okay. Right? Was this motivated by someone who had an emotional connection with the painting or Picasso? Mm-hmm. Or was it strictly for value reasons? Mm-hmm. So I ended up just start trying to learn more about what was going on in the art market, um, why people steal art, why people spend tons and tons of money on art. Uh, because all those became contributing factors right. into why art theft became so popular and still reigns today as a huge criminal trade hmm. and you, i thought you, you did a great job in the book of of and i had never thought about it this way that it is an international currency yeah. and the value that is placed on on art at a particular auction which have have really become more prominent before it was just like getting you had to get it through a dealer and right. now these auctions you know the value is right there and uh, it it can be exchanged for Drugs or yeah. firearms or yeah, and I, all kinds of things. I think that's probably the biggest concern with uh, art as a criminal trade today. Mm-hmm. Um, back when it really started disappearing, I'm not sure if that was the main goal. Right. Because they really didn't know. There was a lot of different schemes. People would steal art for ransom schemes. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell some of those stories in the book, and one of them was um, the IRA had stole, broke into a house. I think it was in Ireland. Stole art to hold it ransom to get 
uh, IRA members out of jail or something. Right. Yeah, so there there um, was a lot of, there may be only really two main motives to steal art. It's either economic or intrinsic value. Um, but within the economic benefit of stealing art, there's all these different schemes that I learned. And so for me to understand maybe what happened to this painting and whether or not it could be found again was kind of eliminating these schemes that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to the uh, Freedom of Information Act and requested the FBI files, uh, the response was they had already been destroyed. And that's because that was routine purging. If it wasn't anything historical, which to them it wasn't, they destroyed the files. So then I went to the St. Louis police and requ- had a request. They didn't have any files on there. Really? And when you think about it, I mean, you're talking about a non-South crime, a piece of art. And back then, um, I don't think it was considered a um, like a victim, you, you know, art. Mm-hmm. was a property theft, right, right. <laughs> right? So it didn't, Stolen. I think, hold any esteem. In fact, in 1973, there was no art theft database to right. collect art. The FBI would have been a very localized agency, so there was even no way for them to communicate art from this city to that city, what oh, has been wow. taken. That didn't really happen until 1979. Wow. By, by 1973, the art theft was occurring at a double-digit rate. So when 79 happened and they decided to have this database, it was well on its way to being the third largest criminal trade, which I think is interesting. Um, One, because nobody knows about it. Um, But two is it just fascinates me why art has captured the imagination of both criminals and highly wealthy people Mm -hmm. who um, collect it and spend a lot of money. So if you've had a chance in recent years to see the documentary on about uh, Salvador Mundi, which is a painting um, thought to be painted by da Vinci, and if you just track where that went, where from 1958, you know, it, it was picked up at an auction with Sotheby's and for like $120, it ends up in an auction in New Orleans um, in what was it, somewhere in the 2012 or something like that? And an art dealer thought, well, you know, that kind of looks like what was supposedly the missing painting. And so they buy this painting, they restore it, and they discover under these layers of paint that looks like that could have been done by the hand of da Vinci. So now this painting is worth millions of dollars, goes on sale. Um, oh, well, it, it's shown at the National Gallery, I think, in, in London. Uh, goes in the Sotheby's catalog for sale. Mm. And finally, this Russian businessman buys it, stores it in a shell port, and, um, or I shouldn't say, she has a shell company, stores it in a free port, and um, then discovers that the dealer he used to buy it swindled him, basically, out of a lot of money. He gets mad, he sells it, and within 18 minutes of an auction, the painting goes from a starting bid of 70 million to over 450 million. Wow. In 18 minutes. Wow. And initially sold for 100 and. $20 uh, in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was the I've, property, I think, <laughs> of Sir Francis Cook. Right. And But. but it was attributed to a workshop back then, not, you know, Da Vinci. <laughs> not Da Vinci, right. But if you just kind of follow, what, what I find fascinating is you just follow how the whole, just even auctions became such um, 
a driver for art prices going right, up, right? right? Mm. They used an auction was an auction, but um, back when uh, the chairman of Sotheby's in the late 50s decided to make it a celebrity event, all of a sudden these prices of this art went up. Artists, their value of all their other works start going up. And once value started, you see this momentum of the value starting to rise mm-hmm. in paintings, people begin investing in paintings as as a because they were worth and rising uh, greater than the market. Right. So they started investing in that, and I think that really caught the attention of criminals. Yeah. Because in Europe, where you have a lot of lot of art, it's not really secure. So you could find art in churches, you could find art in hotels, hmm. and so that really started a pandemic of thefts in the early '60s in Europe, and that essentially made its way to the U.S. Hmm. You know, and you do a great job in the book of going through those little what I'm going to call because I do this too rabbit trails and you okay. go down and you kind of investigate and you you talk about as you you talked about even the psychology of bidding yes. and and three kinds of you where there was a a, a um uh, an experiment group where yeah. you, uh, th- they were wondering why people do what they do in an auction bid and yes. things like that. So even just those little snippets really kind of cause you to kind of, okay, get a grasp of what's going on for people who may not know about art or who right. collect art or anything like that. Maybe they just visit the art museum. Maybe they've never been to the art museum, but they've heard, like, I had forgotten that the Mona Lisa had been stolen. Yeah. And was yeah. like, okay, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. But yeah. Th- but this one, uh, the Picasso, it, it – it hasn't been stolen, or it hasn't been found, and it's and yeah. it's been coming on fifty years now. Yeah, it was actually fifty years this week. Okay. In fact, actually, today's the thirteenth, right? So this was actually fifty years ago. Today is when they reported the theft. So they spent two days, and this is very typical of a museum at the time. If there was a theft, so you have to put it in the mindset of nineteen seventy three. You've got. An increase of these thefts in Europe. They're starting to hit the U.S. Most of them are hitting personal collections and galleries, but you know, museums they would not go unscathed. So now they get hit. So most museums, you know, they're embarrassed by the fact that something goes out the door. Right. They want to make sure they do everything they can first to see if it's in their own building. So they all have security teams. They go and investigate, and finally, when they realize that okay, it is nowhere in the building, we need to report that. And that happened at the Met as well, and so. I, I don't think it, you know, at first it thinks, you might think, well, that sounds suspicious. <laughs> but it's really not. It was very common protocol, I believe, for museums to investigate first it, to figure out if it, if they could figure out where it's at before they report it. So once it was reported, two days had passed since it really disappeared, and it went in the newspaper. And like I said, once it went in the newspaper, the problem was Picasso had just died, and all the stories about his death and his burial and his what would happen to his state that really overshadowed the story. Right. The news I, I I tried to search other newspapers mm-hmm. for just not just the Globe and the Post Dispatch, and I couldn't find any major stories about this art theft. And I think because of what was going on. And so I'm going to take a little break here. Uh, we've got uh, and. And this is Arnold Strug with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. And we're talking to uh, C. Joan Baker. We call her Carol. And we're talking about the book Chasing Picasso, a true story, the true story of a daytime heist on Art Hill. And we're going to talk about what the painting was. Oh, yeah. What Picasso's time period in which he he painted that. And then there's 
some real interesting, like I would, climbs up the mountain that she goes through to find out where is this thing or who could possibly have done this. So we'll be right back. We'll talk about this in a little bit. This is Arnold Strick with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune on the U.S. Radio Network. This is Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune on behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was a major legal event and catalyst that contributed to the Civil War. The decision declared that Dred Scott could not be free because he was not a citizen. The 14th Amendment, also called the Dred Scott Amendment, granted citizenship to all born or naturalized here in our country and was intended to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court decision on July 9, 1868. The Dred Scott Heritage Foundation is requesting a commemorative stamp to be issued from the U.S. Postal Service to recognize and remember the heritage of this amendment by issuing a stamp with the likeness of the man Dred Scott. But we need your support and the support of thousands of people who would like to see this happen. To achieve this goal, we ask you to download, sign, and share the one-page petition with others. To find the petition, please go to dredscottlives.org and click on the Dred Scott Petition Drive on the right side of the page. On behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation, this has been Arnold Stricker of St. Louis In Tune. You know, each time that we plan a show for St. Louis In Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. And while St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect what's going on nationally as well. Our topics cover a wide range of arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, sports, and that's just to name a few. We know there's many radio stations, programs, even podcasts that you could be listening to, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to St. Louis In Tune. If you've missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's STL intune.com there you'll find every show from our first to our most current use the search engine to look for a show that might interest you from one of the many topics that we've covered and drop us a line and tell us how we're doing you can do that at stlintune at gmail.com that's stlintune at gmail.com st louis in tune heard monday through friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. And don't forget, check out our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're talking to C. Joan Baker. She is the author of Chasing Picasso, the true story of a daytime heist on Art Hill. And Joan, a, a fascinating book. And the book is available on Amazon. You can order it, get it at your favorite bookstore. It is a uh, Chasing Picasso, www.chasingpicasso.com. 
And uh, Joan was born and raised in North City, and we had a previous conversation about all of our St. Louis roots and things yeah. like that. And and in just briefly talking off air, you you had some courses in art when you were in school, and you have an English major, right? Yes. All right. So so writing and art is not this uh, you know totally weird thing that you're getting involved with right now well i i never expected to write about art certainly it was the story that really intrigued me um so art was a minor in school so those last couple those couple of years i had the focus in art history that you know i never thought i would ever use this information uh but i at least knew who <laughs> picasso was uh when i heard of, well picasso's taken that's pretty pretty important so yeah um i figured that i'm more of a average person when I go to the museum I because of my background I would probably recognize maybe what an impressionist piece of art was um, I would recognize some names but I am by no means an expert and I certainly didn't know how interesting the art market was mm -hmm. until I start digging into it and I think most people wouldn't just not think of art in this way and the one thing I learned doing this story and going down those little rabbit holes just to figure out what was going on is that when you learn about a piece of art and its background and then you go to the museum and see it it right. makes it that it just gives a whole other layer of personality right because now you kind of have a sense about the artist or where that painting came from and the art museum really has some really cool paintings yes. that are like that yes that you can if you spend some time before you go to the art museum i recommend getting on their website going checking out where they have some history in the provenance mm -hmm. of search mm -hmm. and it, it's cool what you you will find that's true that's yeah. true and we were uh talking a little bit off air and i was like i need to stop because we need to talk about this on air right before uh, we stopped doing that. We were talking about how how could this heist have happened during the day, you know? And basically, this painting is like an eight and a half by eleven, and right, right. It, it was it was um, eight and a half by fourteen. By so it's literally the size of a, like a legal, legal size right. sheet of paper. Right, and somebody maybe however they got it out, whether it's inside a jacket or inside yeah. a a. Uh, uh, kind of a satchel or a purse or something like that. But the systems back then and the time back then is not like it is today. No, no, that's right. So so this painting was, first of all, it was painted on wood. So it was nothing you could rip and roll up. Mm -hmm. But it was small enough, like you said, it could be sealed. It could be concealed. Well, in 1973, the museum looked quite a bit different. Mm -hmm. So it had gone through some renovations uh, from the original design from back in the days of the World Fair. So like today, if you were walking into the main doors of the museum facing Art Hill and you went straight back and you know the doors that go out the backside, well, those originally were on uh, the museum. They were removed, I think, in the 60s and they had put a, a sculpture uh, hall. It's not sculpture hall. It's a sculpture terrace out there. So those doors didn't exist. If you wanted to leave the building, on the back side, you really had to go down through the auditorium lobby, which mm -hmm. looks different than it does today, right? Because right? those offices weren't back there. The museum was not in the best of shape. So if you remember what the 70s were like and what the park system was like, and the, you know there was a lot of vandalism and things like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, so the park, the museum, when it looked out facing Art Hill, you wouldn't even see the windows in the front of the museum. That was just all concrete the skylights were covered because they leaked 
and that. So the museum at the time, you know, was supported by, I think, mostly city taxes. So it really was suffering from not being taken care of the way it it used to. Now, if you walked in the museum today, you would never know that because it's it's fantastic. Uh, But back then, you know, a lot of uh, museums and things like that, they had, it was a struggle. So for that daytime theft to happen, I believe it happened because it was the only way it could happen. There was no front glass to break into. Um, the muse- there were museum guards there 24-7. So the idea of walking out during the day pretending you're just a normal visitor was probably the most optimum way to be able to take something out of that museum. And I think that's what probably happened. Right. So um, now, you, you know, you have these sophisticated alarm systems. This this wouldn't happen today. Uh, but back then, um, and I probably caught everybody off guard, right? Because nobody expects a museum theft. And um, I think in Europe, while it happened a lot in Europe, in the U.S., um, it was really rare. It mostly happened at galleries and personal collections. Right. So. And, it, and this particular piece that Picasso uh, did, it was from 1906. There were yes. some questions about the date, but I think it's settled at 1906. 1906 is where the scholars put it, yes. And I'm trying to remember the style of period that he – well, the pink period? Um, his rose period. Rose period, right. right? So what, uh, it's also interesting about this painting. So it comes in the – near the end of his rose period – um, and that period is named because he tend to use the color red in his paintings, but there was no red hue in this particular painting. Um, and this painting has also uh, a couple sketches that are similar to this because it was a study for a sculpture he would do. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the painting, and if you look, would be the model's left arm is kind of awkwardly dangling in that was Picasso working his way through how he would do this sculpture and work this perspective out. Mm-hmm. So in the final sculpture, you actually don't really see that arm there. It's re- it's removed. So I thought that was interesting, too, is there it was not just this. You would see this elsewhere. And this painting, um, when I went to look at really to history of it, it didn't even show up until a, a, in an art history book. I should say art history book, but I, I suppose that's what you would call them when they like do a, a study of artists. Of his? Yeah, there was a catalog of a blue and rose period. The first one that I found in him was a 1967 book. The official Picasso catalogs, which he started um, pulling together in 1932 uh, under Christian Zervos, I think, was the uh, person who had photographed and put his catalog of works together in his periods. So. Technically, this should have been in the very first one, right? But it didn't make it in. And I'm fascinated how you laid that out because, you, you know, where I'm at in the book right now is you've you've kind of figured, okay, this is why it wasn't in there because of maybe where it came from, yeah, and because of how it got to uh, the United States, yes. And and I don't want to give away the story because oh, I oh no 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 because no. the. I tried to tell this story by telling other interesting pieces of art you could go see, right, rather right. than just straight up tell the story. But it, I was surprised by what I found, quite honestly. I was like, what? I was shocked, frankly. I was like, I, I'm like, could that really be uh, that person, that 
person owned the painting, the art, uh, you know, it was another artist that I, I come to find out. But I just thought, wow, that that's pretty interesting for this painting. Um, but it was also a way for me to eliminate, you know, go through the possibilities of motive and go, okay, could this have been a motive? Because the painting did come to the museum in 1934. Right. And between 1933 and 1945 was really a red flag period for art because in Germany you had the Nazis stealing all this art, stripping them mm-hmm. from museums. Yep. And if you go back to the very beginning where it started, it was 1933 mm-hmm. in Germany when he took power. Mm-hmm. He stripped them from his own galleries right. and museums, and then, of course, from collectors and a lot of German-Jewish citizens. Right. And so um, it, you know, post-war, we learn about this, and it's created a lot of controversy right. in the art market because some paintings... While if they were taken from a German museum, uh, that was considered a legitimate sale because the state sold off their art internationally. And and I didn't think about it this way, but to fund their war effort. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, the money would be going somewhere. Right. Right. And um, and no one really knew it because this was happening before the war. Right. And so it went on for a few years. And in Hitler himself collected art he was a painter as you know and his idea was to have this art museum the Führer museum in his hometown of Linz Austria um, but he didn't like modern art he called it degenerate thought that mm-hmm. the artists who created this type of art were degenerate and so even modern artists someone like a Max Beckman mm-hmm. who was well known you can see a lot of his art at the in St. Louis Art Museum right. You know, he was a, a professor or a teacher at the Institute of Art. I don't think that's the official name, but in Germany. Mm-hmm. And he was stripped from his position. I think he self-exiled himself. And then, um, believe it or not, 10 years after the war, he became a teacher at Washington University. Right. St. Louis which, School of Fine Art. Yeah, which is completely fascinating. Right. It right? is fascinating. Yeah. So... Um, that was one of the things I learned just by trying to follow up all these different angles of what could have, you know, why it came to the museum. Yeah, you take you know? this, okay, this is gone. This piece of art is now missing. All right, who could possibly have taken this? And you kind of think about that and you lay each one of these things out and you get the background like, well, where to. First of all, where did it come from? And you know, when did Picasso have it the last? And and you you go through all of these things, and and you're you're just laying. It's almost like you're in a courtroom, and you're laying this this right. whole uh, yeah information. Yeah, I guess out. you could say that. I guess I spent the last few years too many lawyers or something. I don't know. <laughs> but no, I really I, like how how it flows. I like I, I I really wanted to cover all angles, and because you really you. There's no way you're going to know who t- actually took that piece of art. Right. I know that. Right. 50 years ago, no, we don't know who took it. But if you kind of understood, this was my thinking process, if you kind of understood what was the motive behind the theft, then just maybe you can narrow down where the painting may have landed. Mm-hmm. Is it something that would have went on the international market? Is it something that would have just been maybe... Uh, slipped into another city and sold right. because you know you don't have social media and all these things uh-huh. back then. Right. Stolen property was a big deal in the right. 70s. Things could easily slip out of this market and be sold into another market and no one would know. 
So um, I thought, okay, so then it could still be in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then if it could be still in the U.S. and tell the story, maybe someone bought it not knowing it was stolen from the museum. Right. And then it comes down to, well, if the motive was more intrinsic, then it could be sitting in a basement in somebody's house in St. Louis. And right. they and they don't know it right? because nobody really knows the story. Until it, that person passes away and yeah. and the, the kids go into the house yeah. and like, what's this here, you know? Yeah. Let's, so let's bring in the antique person and have them take care yeah. of the house, you know? And you don't even know where that person, you know, that they inherit from right. got it either. Right. I mean, it's just, and, and because you don't know, I didn't want the focus to be on finding a person because I think that's impossible and you couldn't prosecute anyone anyways if you did find them. I think it was really what I wanted to tell this unique story which also told this unique, fascinating world about the art market. And it was an opportunity also to uh, talk about a fascinating art at the museum. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, answer the question, could it be found? You know, if we just told the story, because the story's not known. No, and it's so not. you can't find something you haven't really talked about. Uh-huh. So, and just by telling the story, I wanted to know can we find it? Because one of the things that happened, which I thought was interesting, was I went to the FBI database that is online now, and I could not find that piece of art there. Wow. And if I, so I went back to 79, their first art theft database, and I got their manual that talks about their new system. I, I got. I started collecting these government manuals, right? How a fencing operation works how to, during this period. I really just wanted to know what really was going on then. So when I looked at the the new art system, it was called the National uh, Stolen Art File that the um, FBI created, and it was just for the FBI offices to communicate and update stolen art in the system. And I think when that went live to a database, that particular painting which by every definition should have been in that database right and met all the requirements uh it wasn't there hmm. and so it it, it probably you know because it came five years the system came five years after the art theft happened by then people already forgot about the painting um that it maybe by accident was left off yeah i feel like the painting suffered from a lot of I agree of things yeah. that just were bad timing mm-hmm. right I agree <laughs> right that you. just made it not a well, important yeah it was just not a well-known painting but if you look at picasso's work and how valuable it is today and if you you know what i you know, without a painting, I, I can't go to an art expert and say, hey, tell me how much this is, this is worth. Um, so what I tried to do is something I would use, of course, when, in my market research mm-hmm. in, in the corporate world. What I would try to figure out, okay, well, let's look at another piece of art from the same period. Right. Let's see what that was worth in this year. Right. Let's try to figure out what this – we know what it was worth when they bought it. We know what it was worth in 1978 was the last known value I found on the painting. What was that compound annual growth rate? And so if we projected that out to you know, tw- 2022, what would that be? And the number came up to be over $30 million. And I was like, wow, does that sound right? I mean, that seems like an awful lot. So then I went and took a painting that I've known has that same period that I could grow. I could look at the compound annual growth and that I know has sold in recent years on the art market. And the percentage actually, the compound annual growth for that painting actually went up. Um, so I feel like that painting really could be, if it's in good shape, 
really worth a lot of money. Right. So. Right. And I, you know, as you were talking about that, that it's it's kind of like the forgotten piece of art in in the whole art world, and yeah. that was stolen. There was a couple other heists that happened at the St. Louis Art Museum that did get some notoriety. Yeah. And and maybe it was you know after things started kind of blowing up in Europe and then coming coming over here to the states at where you know art was being lifted from galleries and being lifted from yeah. museums and things like that that these two heists where one involved somebody very famous that we know uh, he's a director of motion pictures yeah 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 so he bought a painting he didn't know it was stolen <laughs> and um, that was a piece of art that was stolen two months after um, the castle was stolen, and it landed on the FBI's newly launched internet database. And mm-hmm. and his assistant had saw the painting and said, "Hey, do you know you got a stolen painting in your collection?" He was like, "What?" So he's actually the one that contacted the FBI and yeah. said, um, "What's going on?" Right. So there, I, I don't want to get too far into the story and let the reader enjoy it, but right. that I, when it occurred to me that happened, I was like, "Well, okay." And then you had these thefts at the museum in '78, and those those pieces of art were recovered. But even the recovery, when they were investigating those thefts, all these stories start coming out. And one of which involved uh, the um, assassination plot to right. kill a well-known civil rights leader. Right. And so I was like, "What?" I know. Well, that's what I thought. So that's really, and you read this, you're like, "What was going on back then?" Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then you have to really think about, well, okay, this first painting that was stolen, is it any way related to what was going on afterwards? Or did it kickstart what went right, on? Right, Because the, the thefts, how they happened, were different. But you also have to consider that the museum's layouts had were different. Too. Had too. Had also, too. Um, but I, after doing some research, I believe that... Um, they may not exactly been connected with the operations. You know, there was multiple apparently fencing operations in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. I, I can find two. There were probably more than that. I, I'm not sure, or I don't at least think that that particular um, how I open this group of whatever they were organized crime or whatever that went in and took this. I. I don't think it was them. I think, though, it could have been still a contract theft. Someone mm-hmm. could have mm-hmm. contracted to hire someone and go in and steal that during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I said, well, we would never really know who took it right. Or, right. or exactly why. We're talking to C. Joan Baker. We call her Carol. She's the author of Chasing Picasso, the True Story of a Daytime Heist on Art Hill. And that painting is entitled Nude, but it's not really the official title. There's been several titles of it. That's right. Really, the official title is A Study for Kneeling Woman Arranging, or I'm sorry, Combing Her Hair. Combing Her Hair, There's one with Arranging Her Hair in there. There, I think one's called Kneeling Nude, Arranging Her Hair. There's um, A Study in Nude or For Nude. I think that's what they called it when it came to the museum. and the, But when it disappeared, the press just called it nude. And if you want to talk about a generic title, you will find across art. Nude is probably one of the most generic things yep. that you would find. So, again, another thing that would make it hard to really identify. Right. Now, how was the current staff of the art museum 
as far as in assistance of your discoveries and your research and well, things like that? I, I don't want to put you in a bad spot or put them in a bad spot because this is a long – this is 50 years this ago. This is 50 years ago. And so, you know, this is – you know, this isn't something they, uh, they authorized for me to do. But mm-hmm. – I was able to use their uh, research library and um, some of their pictures to um, talk to the story. Now, I had to go to the Picasso uh, administration to get rights to use the painting, so um, because all of Picasso's work is uh, copyrighted. So, I, uh, you know, for me, for sharing the story was really about sharing this unique story in history in the art museum. Um, I mean, I don't know how they really feel about it. It happened so long ago. It's not who they are today. In fact, when this happened, it wasn't the St. Louis Art Museum. It was called the City Art Museum of right. St. Louis. Different time period. So I, I hope that they enjoy the book at least as a piece of history. Right, right. And that, and I try to um, really make it so people would be interested in actually going to the museum to really right. see some. Are they going cool to put art. it in their bookstore? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think most of the books, you know, although I would okay. really enjoy that, um, I think most of the books in their store are pure art books. Right, and right. Art, and this really isn't quite up to the pure art book, but um, hopefully, um, you know, I've been talking with the History Museum, and hopefully that's where it's going to end up. It's a fascinating book, folks, Chasing Picasso, The True Story of a Daytime Heist on Art Hill by C. Joan Baker. And... Uh, Carol, it's 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 been fun having you in to talk oh, about you, this. Thank you. Thank you. I is, enjoyed it. I I am not done with the book yet, but I've just been like, okay, this is cool. I told my wife that you got to read this when we're done because we go to the art museum very frequently. Oh yeah. And one of the you know some of the paintings and some of the uh, artists that you talk about in there is like, okay, yeah, we like those those. Yeah, paintings. one of my favorite paintings, and I talk about it in here, is Christ and Sinner by Max Beckman. I right. love that painting. Hmm. I just think it's a. It's it's a beautiful piece of art, and if once you learn that that piece of artwork was the story behind it, there's a story behind it. Yeah, and it, it's an it, interesting. It makes story. you look at it a little differently. It it does. I'm I'm glad it's at our museum, though. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Well, we thank you for coming in. We're going to take a break. This is uh, Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. Don't forget, get this book, Chasing Picasso: The True Story of a Daytime Heist on Art Hill, by C. Joan Baker. Go to ChasingPicasso.com, and you can get more information or go to Amazon.com. Oh, oh, and I will be selling some books out at uh, Picasso's Coffee House this weekend and a book signing on Main Street. So if you happen to be in the area, stop by. If you have a book, I'll sign it. If you want to buy a book, I will have a couple with me. That sounds great. We'll be right back after this break. At St. Louis In Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. We cover a wide range of topics, such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports, and that's just to name a few. While St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect to what's going on nationally as well. If you missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. 
That's stlintune.com. There you'll find the show notes and everything that was mentioned in that episode and all the other great episodes as well. And if you've got an area that you'd like us to examine deeper, well, just let us know by dropping us a note at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis in tune. It's heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. Our website, again, is stlintune.com. Visit us today. That's stlintune.com. This is Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune on behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was a major legal event and catalyst that contributed to the Civil War. The decision declared that Dred Scott could not be free because he was not a citizen. The 14th Amendment, also called the Dred Scott Amendment, granted citizenship to all born or naturalized here in our country and was intended to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court decision on July 9, 1868. The Dred Scott Heritage Foundation is requesting a commemorative stamp to be issued from the U.S. Postal Service to recognize and remember the heritage of this amendment by issuing a stamp with the likeness of the man Dred Scott. But we need your support and the support of thousands of people who would like to see this happen. To achieve this goal, we ask you to download, sign, and share the one-page petition with others. To find the petition, please go to dredscottlives.org and click on the Dred Scott Petition Drive on the right side of the page. On behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation, this has been Arnold Stricker of St. Louis In Tune. Oh, yeah. Hurt. That's my favorite part. Is that? What the part? What? Welcome back to St. Louis In Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we are jamming away here. How do they make that sound? What do they use to make that sound? Yeah, it's That's, uh, electronics. It is electronics. Yeah. There's, I, I'm always amazed I would watch uh, some of these uh, bands in live, and I, well, they're using a keyboard to make some of these sounds right. that I thought was made on a guitar or electric guitar or something. It's yeah, like it's just synthesized. Yeah, synthesized. There you go. That's a big word for yeah. today. Synthes- I remember the first synthesizer I was exposed to. It was in high school. Oh, okay. And we bought a synthesizer, and it was like, oh, it was, mm-hmm. it was like huge. Wow. But it did some wild things. There's some distorting things that we do on software now that are free. That's a, yeah. Well, yeah. It's all amazing, <laughs> isn't it? It's all amazing to me. You know, and what was amazing on when we were talking to Carol was the fact that this story just seems to have been forgotten and just kind of shoved out into uh-huh. you know the backwoods somewhere. It's fascinating. I, I had never heard of it and have. You just kind of gotten online. There's not a lot of it. And no. her book is really probably the preeminent source of of information about it. Mm-hmm. So great book. Wow. So I have some jokes, Mark. Okay. I'm just kind of my you know Good. it's just flowing out of me oh, at no. this time. Okay, folks, you've been warned. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> don't be mad at lazy people, Mark. Why not? They didn't do anything. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> oh gosh, where is it? I know it. You know, and it's and it's, okay. <laughs> you know, pretty soon it's going to be May thirty first or uh-huh. uh, Memorial Day, which is actually kind of the unofficial start of summer. Right. You know, and right. you go to Labor Day mm-hmm. in September, which is the unofficial end of summer, and, right. and that's right. when really pools open and when they right. close. You know, right. right. So today, a man knocked on my door. He was asking for a small donation for our local swimming pool. I gave him a glass of water. Oh. <laughs> That's really good, actually. <laughs> you know, I know many people are conscious coming out of the out of uh, you know, the, the pandemic, pandemic uh-huh. pounds, you know, mm-hmm. and things like that. It's officially over now. It is officially over, so the pound should just fall off, actually. Okay. Uh, no, that wasn't okay. my joke, but right. <laughs> um, the more you weigh, the harder you are to kidnap. So stay safe, eat cake. That's I, okay. <laughs> You know, and I've always had trouble with this one, and it's the difference between an alligator and a crocodile, you know? They, oh, yeah. And I think one's got a, the, I want to call the snout, is uh-huh. is more pointed, and the other one's just kind of, uh, I'm, I'm looking so. at square, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the alligator and the crocodile, but I believe the main difference is that one will see you later, and the other one will see you after a while. I, I could be wrong, but I'm not a zoologist. <laughs> Wow. Did you get that one? Or Not really, but I you, think it's still pretty bad. After a see you later alligator, after, oh, after a while, a wild crocodile. crocodile. Oh, why didn't you say something about that? Okay. Well, I didn't want to. Yeah, know. I know. Well, you got to explain them. I don't know if that's the joke or the person. And and I know that a receiving. majority of archaeologists, I didn't know this, if you knew this, are, are women. No, I did not and know And it's that. due to their natural, natural ability to dig up the past. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my wife never forgets a thing. Honey, that was 30 years ago. <laughs> I know. You know, I, and I thought the dryer was making my clothes shrink. Uh-huh. It turns out it was the refrigerator. Oh, wow, I love that one. <laughs> oh, Lord. And you, you, know, you might know this. Okay, here's some new words to that song. Okay. If you're happy and you know it, stay in bed. If you're happy and you know it, stay in bed. If you're happy and you know it, getting up will surely blow it. If you're happy and you know it, stay in bed. I love it. That's great. I love it. I don't know where the crowd is for, for clapping, but I, they would if they could find us. You know, recently there was uh, Easter, and a lot of kids love the Easter egg hunt. You know, they have one at the White House every right. year, you know, oh, yeah. annually with that. Right. But this was some information that I thought is really probably great for parents, and they need to remember this. <laughs> And grandparents, that if you hide 48 eggs and tell your kids there's 50, you will get a little nap in. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's it. That's a good idea. And Mark, sometimes I know some people, right. uh, you know, they ask you for marital <laughs> advice. Right, they and do. you can tell them this. You know, the relationship between a husband and a wife is psychological. Mm-hmm. One is psycho and the other is logical. Oh, my God. Get that horse out of here, will you? <laughs> And I, I can identify with this one. I remember my mom said, you know, you won't need braces to straighten your teeth. I'll straighten them for you. You know, it's one of those kinds of deals. Sorry. <laughs> but it's like, it's one, one guy saying, you ever yell at your dad? Uh, and the other said, yeah, once when I was 12. Uh, and the kid said, well, what happened? No idea. I was 16 when I woke up. <laughs> That makes total sense. I'll tell you right now. I know. Wow. I know it. 
<laughs> I love it. How do you come So Bob and his wife started dieting a week ago. Oh, no. Bob's wife proposed that they should have a cheat day today. Mm. She brought home McDonald's and KFC wings. Bob brought home his secretary. From his hospital bed, Bob is wondering when men will ever begin to understand women. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And you ever watch somebody do something that you go, well, that's dumb. Mm -hmm. There is a new T-shirt out that says, no, you're right. Let's do it the dumbest way possible because it's easier for you. (laughs) I know that person. (laughs) You know, kids today, you and I both grew up at the same time. I remember like when we go to the playground, there was never any mulch. There was never any. It was like no. concrete or asphalt. Oh, you know, yeah. if there was a little rubber thing underneath there, it was probably torn away. We used it for a base. <laughs> you know, right. Kids today are soft. I died once when I was five, and my mom said, walk it off. Oh, oh no. <laughs> You'll be fine. Walk it They did, too. They did. Yeah. I, and those, those uh, I can't even remember what they're called, but we used to. Uh, merry-go-rounds? Yeah, the merry-go-rounds. You'd push those things, then you could hang off those things, oh, yeah. you know, a variety oh. of ways. Do and, that now at your age. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah, you would get dizzy. You stand in the middle, and you kind of you get dizzy. We yeah. would... <laughs> get that baby out of here. We, we used to do that just to see how we would stagger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, sure. So here's a cooking tip. That explains so much. Here's a okay. cooking tip. <laughs> if you stir co- coconut oil into kale... Uh-huh. It makes it easier to scrape it into the trash. <laughs> you know, and some and I, I've been talking about my mom. You know, I'm not serious about yeah, this because right. some of these jokes they have mom or they have dad yeah. or they have husbands and wives, right. and that's right. not our relationships and stuff. Right. But you know, my trust issues started when my mom said, "Come here, I'm not going to hit you." <laughs> <laughs> yes, she was. <laughs> You know, and I'm still tired from yesterday's tired, so today isn't looking so good, and I've already used up tomorrow's tired. <laughs> you know, carrots are a great thing to eat when you're hungry and want to stay that way. <gasps> yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> i I got to repeat this one again because it was just so classic All right. about the dumbest thing. Yeah. No, you're right. Let's do it the dumbest way possible because it's easier for you. <laughs> I gotta stop. Oh no, you really don't, but you should. <laughs> we're getting close to the end. But uh, we're not that close, but all right. So here's here are some. These are actually some really good ones, parents. Okay. These are serious. Really? These are serious. These aren't funny. These are these, not... are these are good ones for you to remember. To encourage your kids, okay? Okay. Somehow, I've lucked out and have an eight-year-old who thinks secretly reading under the covers past her bedtime Ooh. is an act of rebellion. And it hasn't yet occurred to her that her flashlights never seem to run out of batteries. Mm. And you can add this. My dad used to check out science books from the library and specifically forbid me from reading them because they were only for grown-ups. <laughs> Strangely, he always left them out on his desk. That's kind of smart. Yeah, it is. It's very smart. Yes. And now it's not flashlights because they read on their phones. Right. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But back in the day. And they do it in the movies, too. When they're sitting in front of me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
And here's another serious one. Okay, all right. This is from Aristotle. All right. Okay, so it's got to be a little oh, okay. cerebral and, you know, Greek thought okay, kind of deal. All right. Excellence is never an accident. It is the result of high intention, sincere effort, and intelligent execution. It represents the wisest option among many, many alternatives. Mm-hmm. Choice, not chance, determines your destiny, dreams, and values. Mm, very well said. Well said. Yep. I like that. That's really good. Good. That is good. Yeah. So even though we have funny things, we also have cerebral kinds of oh, encouragement. My. Is that our word for the day? Cerebral. Cerebral. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I left my all my notes at home. Yeah, we were going to do a word of the day. Yeah, and I have two wonderful ones. Do you know them off the top well, of your head? I think I have one still here. You it's were from supposed the last to like memorize them before you come. Oh my gosh! I, I know, I'm but have it's trouble speaking it's, regular uh, English here. Oh, I know that's true. Hands on those buzzers. Hold on, I mean, yeah. I'm trying Hands to, on those I buzzers. Can't find them. No, that's not the one. Oh, so sorry. Yeah, I can't find the one. There is uh, somewhere in here. Is the uh, okay? Here's the word. You ready? Yep. Word of the day. Dendrochronology. <laughs> Dendro. Dendrochronology. Chronology. So it is. Okay, let's think about this. Chronology. Yeah, I was just trying. Time. All right. Or the study of. Dendros. Uh, <laughs> yeah, dendros. And in, in Greek, it means trees. So the study of tree rings. Oh, Chronology. Dendrochronology, I like folks. That. Oh, I like that. Yeah. The tree rings, yeah. Right, tree and rings. they all mean a different thing. So when somebody get, has their chainsaw and they're sawing that tree down, mm-hmm. you can say, are you a dendrochronologist? Ooh, yes. <laughs> and they're going to look at you like, what? No, that, how gonna, many rings do you see? How the, old is this tree? They're going to chase you with that chainsaw. Right. Aren't they? Like yes. Jason. I know. They were, ooh, that's pretty scary, too. They're, actually, I just saw a uh, an app where you can take a picture. I saw that, too. Did you? Yeah. And it'll tell you how old that tree is. Right. And then you feel really bad because that tree is 150 years old, and I just cut it down. Right. You know? It's like, you came along. That tree was doing fine for 150 years. Until you came until along. Until you came along and... Wanted to be a dendrochronologist. And <laughs> cut it down. <laughs> Wow. Okay. All right. That's all I have, Mark. Is that it? That's it. That's probably enough. Well, folks, that's all for this hour. Thanks for listening. Don't forget. Yeah. Martians are not dendrochronologists. No, they're not. But even if they decide to invade, there's only one race, the human race, and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. St. Louis in Tune is a production of Motif Media Group and the U.S. Radio Network. For St. Louis in Tune, co-host Mark Langston, I'm Arnold Stricker. Remember to walk worthy and let your light shine.